The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I'm going to read Judges 6 this morning. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out to the house, sorry, brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the God, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abazarite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his... Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the land, into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Excuse me. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rocks and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. 
But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there, and the Lord called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abezerites. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he as the Lord, sorry, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubel, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went out to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early in the morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And so God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. Thanks be to God. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 6 as we officially cross the halfway point of this book. Obviously not in terms of chapters, but we're crossing the halfway point in terms of major judges. Right? There, are, there are six major judge cycles in this book, and we've done three of them. So now we're crossing the halfway point, and the last three judge cycles that we are going to get, you probably picked this up from the reading, they're just a little bit longer than what's come before. Like, we didn't even read half of Gideon's story today. Gideon's story alone is longer than all three of the previous judge cycles we've seen combined. Samson's is too. Jephthah's almost is. Like, 
these final three judge cycles are longer than anything that's come before. That's why we've got so many chapters left. And that's because these final three judges are going to take everything we've already seen thus far. And they're going to expand it, widen it. Most of all, they're going to, they're going to deepen it. These three judges are going to take us deeper into the darkness than anything we've seen before. We've talked constantly about how dark of a book Judges is. We haven't seen anything yet. And today, just starting off right here with Gideon, this dive into the darkness starts off really personal because it takes us into a bit of darkness that I think is very personal, that we all face, that we all feel. This, this story begins, it, it, it hits at a hurt that gnaws at our hearts anytime we find ourselves in the dark. Anytime you find yourself in a place of suffering, hurt, in a place in life where you don't understand, this gnaws at the heart of every believer I know. Where is God? Like, where, where is he? As believers, I don't know if we've got a greater existential angst. Like whenever the darkness descends, we have this gnawing feeling that we've been abandoned. And I mean, Scripture tells us again and again, Lord is with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. But we find ourselves constantly asking, okay, if that's true, where are you? I don't see you. The famous priestly blessing of Numbers chapter, 20, uh, chapter 6 and verse 25 may say, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. But he's not shining in my darkness and I don't see his face. Like the Lord is with us? Then why is everything so dark? That's the question that plagues our hearts, and it's the question at the heart of our text this morning. And I believe it gets asked and answered in three ways. Asked and answered three different times. See the first one with me, beginning in verse 1. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, which by this point in the book of Judges, we know that means idolatry. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So... Our major judge cycles come at us in six steps, and right here we see the first two of those six steps, rebellion and wrath. Rebellion, the people go after other gods. Wrath, God gives them over to their oppressors. This time, roll the dice, those oppressors are Midian. And we get more details about what this oppression looks like than ever before. Like if you read verses two through five, what we find out is Midian's oppression was annual. Each year, around harvest time, they would team up with their buddies, the Amalekites, and they would come from the east over the Jordan River and just sweep through the land all the way until they got basically to the Gaza Strip. And they would just pluck it for everything that it was worth, take all the produce, bring their herds, their crops, and just descend like, like locusts, consuming everything. The people of Israel would actually have to flee to caves in the mountains and, and hide out all the Midianite army and their herds swept through the land. You know, uh, Ben Franklin may have said there's only two certainties in life, death and taxes. But if you were an Israelite in Judges chapter 6, there were three certainties, death, taxes, and Midian. Midian came every single year. And so we read in verse 6, Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. There's a cry of regret, not of repentance. 
We've seen that again and again, and it becomes even more explicit in this story this time. It becomes more explicit that this is regret, not repentance, because of what God does next. Okay, our, our six-step cycle has trained us that next we should be looking for rescue. Rebellion, wrath, regret, rescue. This is the point in the story where God raises up a deliverer. But that's not what God does, not at first. No, first he sends a prophet because it is essential in this story that we see precisely what is happening. It's essential in this story that we see that the people are not repentant. It's essential in this story that we see God is not the one abandoning his people. They've abandoned him. Hear God's words on the lips of the prophet. Verse 8. Prophet comes and says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, drove them out before you, gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord. You'll notice that's in all caps. That's your translators telling you that that is him saying, I am Yahweh. That's God's covenant name to remind the people that he is a covenant-keeping God. He's a God of steadfast love. I said to you, I am Yahweh, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. God says, this is who I am. I'm the Lord, Yahweh. I'm the, remember, I'm, I'm the covenant-keeping God. And isn't that what I've done? Saved you from slavery, given you the land that I told you I would. I, I, I've kept the covenant. In other words, God's saying, this is who I am. I am a God of steadfast love, and this is what I've done. I've shown you steadfast love. I am the God who has been with you, but you have not obeyed my voice. You haven't kept the covenant. You haven't shown steadfast love. You have left me. Shades, all of that, all of that context is key. It's key for the scene that is about to unfold. We've got to see that people aren't truly repentant. God's calling them to true repentance. We've got to see God has not abandoned his people. They've abandoned him. That's key because in our next scene, we move from God speaking to the entire nation down to him visiting one man, Gideon. And we can't understand this interaction if we didn't see those words from the prophet before. Look at this interaction with Gideon beginning in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Bezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press. It's a strange place to beat out wheat. In the wine press. To hide it from the Midianites. You know, when you, when you beat out wheat, you take it, you chunk it up in the air so that it blows the chaff away and the grain falls back down. Very visible from very far away, unless you're hiding in a wine press, apparently. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord. Notice, not all caps right there. That's just the word, sir. Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? 
Where is wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Like right here on the lips of Gideon, we encounter our existential question for the first time. The Lord is with us. Gideon says, yeah, you're right. Ironically, he says that to the Lord who's with him. We've seen this character before, the angel of the Lord. We saw him back in Judges chapter 2, and you'll notice him throughout the Old Testament. And it's a very interesting figure. The angel of the Lord gets talked about as like a representative of Yahweh, but then simultaneously he gets talked about as if he is Yahweh. If you remember, you can go back and listen to it, but in Judges chapter 2, I made an argument that I believe what we see in the angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. I believe this before he ever took on flesh, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I believe that Jesus is talking to Gideon right here. And so his words are truer than Gideon could ever know. The Lord's with you. I don't just mean that in a general sense. I mean that like, like right now. But Gideon says, yeah, right. Here we see the things we've already seen before deepening and darkening. Do you remember the last judge cycle we went through, Deborah and Barak? Barak was timid about whether or not the Lord was with him. Barak questioned that. Deborah was able to encourage him. Look, don't you see? The Lord goes before you. And Barak eventually could see that and all of that. To Gideon, it's like, don't you see? The Lord is with you. And he says, not, nah, don't see it. It's deepening. It's, it's darkening. Gideon's like, man, God isn't with you. Can't you see? I am threshing out grain in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. You call me a mighty man of valor. Do you see what I'm doing? Like, I wish I could be throwing this stuff up in the, out, the open air, but I can't. And you know why. It's because the Lord isn't with us. He has forsaken us. You ever feel that way, Shade? You ever read in this word the same word that's getting delivered to Gideon? The Lord is with you. You ever read that here? The Lord is with you. I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And you have the same thought that Gideon does? Yeah, right. Like, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Just look at the darkness that I'm in. Look at at the darkness of this world. Look at the darkness of my own life. It feels so barren. Like my own version of the Midianites and Amalekites have just come through and stripped everything bare. And not just once, it feels like that happens to me year after year after year. The Lord isn't with me. I don't care what this word says. At least that's the way it it seems. But Shades, Shades, this this is where Judges 6 begins to help us, begins to help us see Why? Why it can seem like the Lord is not with us. Through Gideon, we see three things, and right here we're seeing the first one. Number one, sometimes it seems like the Lord isn't with us because we've left him. Sometimes it seems like the Lord isn't with us because we've left him. 
So several years ago, my family was on uh, vacation, and I was helping Asher, who's seven now. I think he was like three or four at the time. But I was helping him in a, in a swimming pool, like learn how to swim. So, you know, of course, like I'm holding him like this, and then I'm kick his legs, cup his hands, reach out, pull the water, all the things you're supposed to do, right? And Asher, like, is becoming overconfident way too quickly. And he keeps trying to get away from me. I'm like, no, 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 you're not, you're not ready yet. You've got to stay right here. But eventually, this little kid in the midst of the water gets too slippery for my grip and manages, quite of his own volition, to pull away. And exactly what you think would happen, happens. He sinks. And so I, like naturally, you know, spring into action, super dad that I am. And I like go and I, I pull him up and he's like coughing and spewing water. I mean, just make it a whole dramatic mess of the whole thing. But then I'll never forget, that joker was mad at me. Like fury, he treated me like I abandoned him and plunged him to the bottom of the pool. But he's the one who swam away. So Shades, here's Gideon coughing and spitting out water, threshing grain in a wine press, talking about how God has abandoned them. But Israel is the one who swam away. Is that not what we heard the prophet say? That's precisely why we needed to hear his words so that we could see clearly the reality of Israel's situation. The reality of their situation is, is not only that they were the ones who had abandoned the Lord, but that even though they had done that, he still has not abandoned them. Do you catch that? Like, like the conclusion of the prophet's words after he rehearsed what God had done and said, but you have not obeyed my voice. Like at the conclusion of those words, what do we expect to be on the end of that? Do we not expect and anticipate a word of judgment? Here's who I am. Here's what I've done. You've not obeyed my voice. Therefore, here comes a declaration of destruction. But that's not what we get. Instead, we get a story of God still relentlessly pursuing his unrepentant people. We don't get a story of destruction. We get a story of deliverance. Even when his people have abandoned him, he still comes to them saying, the Lord is with you. You, you may not be at peace with me, but you better believe that I'm going to move heaven and earth to make sure that I do everything possible to be at peace with you. Shades, when, when Asher swam away from my arms, I went after him to save the kid from drowning. Here's the angel of the Lord coming after his people. This is what Jesus does. Here's the angel of the Lord coming after his people to save them from Destruction. I, I, just, I just want to say, Gideon, I know it seems like the Lord isn't with you, but that's because you've left him through, through your sin. And yet, Gideon, here's the truth. He's still with you, still pursuing you. Shades, the same is true for you. Like, does it seem, does it seem like the Lord is not with you? Could it be? Could it be that's because you've left him? I'm not saying, please hear me. I'm not saying, and Judges is not saying, that every time we find ourselves in the dark, every time we find ourselves in the midst of hurt and it feels like God isn't present, I'm not saying that's always a result of our sin and we've done something wrong. Not at all. But sometimes it is. I know that sometimes it is in my own life. And the point the 
point is that even there, our God doesn't leave us. No, it is precisely there that he comes to redeem us. That's the gospel shade. God, God comes into the midst of our mire and muck of all of our sin. He comes into our darkness to save us. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for you in this, that while we were still sinners, while we're in the midst of the muck and the mire, Christ humbled himself and took on flesh, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, got down into the muck and mire of our sin to save us. And that's exactly what he's doing in Judges 6. God is coming for his people who are drowning in their sin, and he's coming to save them. So what he says, look at verse 14. And the Lord turned to Gideon and said, go in this might of yours, and save Israel. I'm here to deliver. I'm here to save. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Connect those phrases. When he says, go in this might of yours, he's not saying might that Gideon has on his own. This might of yours is, I send you. Go in this might of yours. I'm sending you. And Gideon said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. I'm not this mighty man of valor that you imagine me to be. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. He makes it clear what this might is that he's talking about. I will be with you. Whenever anybody in scripture starts laying out excuses or whenever you and I start to lay out ours, this is God's trump card. If we're playing spades, this is his ace of spades right here. I'm with you. Like he lays that on top of Abraham's excuses, Isaac's, Jacob's, Moses, Joshua, Gideon. I'm with you. I don't care if it doesn't look like it. That's what's true. God is raising up Gideon to deliver his people. Gideon protests because of his weakness. God plays his ultimate trump card. I will be with you. That's why he can call Gideon a mighty man of valor because he'll be with Gideon, providing the power. Like everything we've seen about Gideon, personally so far, says the opposite, that he is not a mighty man of valor. Like starting out with how we meet him, threshing his grain, hiding in a wine press. Like he's scared. Even doubting the promises of God to be with him and provide power. Like if you read, we don't have time to read every single verse and go through every single verse in this chapter, but if you read verses 17 to 23, Gideon's still scared and he asks for a sign so that he'll know this is really God promising power, promising his presence. And what does God do? Graciously gives him a sign. But ironically, this doesn't calm Gideon's fears. It increases them. Look at verse 22. This is right after the sign. Then Gideon perceived that he was dealing with the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. God's like, calm down, dude. The point of this was to calm your fears, man. Gideon, he is constantly nervous. We're going to see this throughout this chapter. We're going to see it throughout the next chapter. Gideon, he, as, as a good friend of mine used to say, he is more nervous than a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Like, 
Like we will see his fears again and again, and we will see his fears continually cause him to ask the same question again and again. Is the Lord really with us? We see that question surface again implicitly in our next scene. Not explicitly, but implicitly. So look at the next scene with me. As a result of all that Gideon has experienced with the angel of the Lord, he's like, man, God really is with me. If you read verse 24, he sets up an altar, sacrifices to the Lord, and it seems like things are going great. There's just one problem. Verse 24, he sets up an altar to the Lord. Verse 25, we learn that's not the only altar in Gideon's life. Verse 25, that night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. Cut down the Asherah. That would be like a wooden, almost like a pole kind of idol. Cut down the Asherah that's beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with the stones laid in due order. Take down everything that represents idolatry in your life and replace it with me. No room for two gods, Gideon, just one. Then take the second bull, offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men. Ah, bravery. Finally, Gideon sees and gets it. The Lord is with him. Keep reading. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. Because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So, like, here's my question. Like, after everything that Gideon had seen that day, like, after knowing he had been face to face with the angel of the Lord, he's still afraid. Why? If the Lord is with us, why be afraid? I actually think that we are seeing the answer to Gideon's existential angst through the action that God has called him to perform. In other words, I think Gideon still doubts God's power and presence in his life because Gideon's got more than one God in his life. And he's still figuring out which one he trusts. He's still not sure if the Lord is really with him. I think we're seeing the second reason why. We've seen that sometimes it can seem like the Lord isn't with us because we've left him. Now we see number two. Sometimes it seems like the Lord isn't with us because we've invited others in. And they crowd out our view of him. My son, Asher, uh, he sleeps with this uh, plush dog, little stuffed dog named Fluff Fluff. We're super creative with stuffed animal names in our house. Uh, over the years, we've had, uh, we've had Pink Bunny. Uh, we've had Berry Bear. Uh, Solomon has a buffalo that we call Lolo. Um, yeah, we're super creative. Anyway, so Fluff Fluff. Every night, we go on the exact same search for Fluff Fluff. And do you know what makes this search so difficult? It's not Fluff Fluff. It's everything else. It's the toys, it's the cars, it's the magnetiles, it's the Legos, it's the costumes. In other words, it's all, it's all the other stuff in the room that makes it hard to see if Fluff Fluff is even there. Though we know he is. Somewhere. 
Gideon's had this encounter now. He knows that the Lord is there somewhere. But it seems like his power and presence are still hard to see, and that's because of everything else, or we might say everyone else, that has been invited into Gideon's life. Baal and Asherah, the Canaanite gods, had been invited into his family, to his life. Sure, his father Joash had told him growing up about Yahweh and how Yahweh had once delivered them as a people from from the land of Egypt. That's what Gideon told us back in verse 13. Go back, look at it. He said, my father told me about all this stuff growing up. But his father was also a practical man living in the land of Canaan. Being a practical man, living in an agricultural land, you need help with the gods of agriculture who can give us economic prosperity. We need to incorporate Baal and Asherah into our lives. Shades. Shades. This right here, this is vital for us to see. Most of the time, idolatry for Israel was not them leaving behind Yahweh and going after and embracing other gods. No. Most of the time, it was combining worship of Yahweh with worship of other gods, namely the gods of the surrounding culture. That is vital for us to see because Shade's idolatry still looks the same. Amongst the people of God, idolatry does not primarily look like Christians abandoning Jesus to go worship the gods of the culture. No, most of the time it looks like combining worship of Jesus with the gods of the culture. Marrying Jesus in our materialism. Marrying Jesus in our political party. Marrying Jesus in our favorite news station. And we do this because, I mean, we live in the modern world. We got to be practical. Jesus is great to worship on Sunday, but if I really want security in this modern world, then I've got to trust in these things. If I really want economic prosperity, I got to trust in these things. We, Shades, we have a vision of the good life that is antithetical to the vision that God presents us. We have a vision of the good life that we worship to the point of scrolling through images of it for hours on end. Don't think that in the ancient world they were the only people that worshiped and bowed down to images. We scroll through them for hours, bowing down and letting our hearts fall in love with what we see. If that's not worshiping, then I don't know what what is. Our altars may not be made of rock. Our altars may be digital, material, or political, but they are still places of worship nonetheless. Shades, do we invite those false gods in to the point that we can no longer see Jesus or at least not see him accurately? Because we, like Gideon, think he's okay with sharing the throne room of our heart. Gideon just built that altar to Yahweh. Altar of Baal's right there. This is fine. This is good. How often do I live the same way, thinking that Jesus will be okay with sharing the throne room of my heart? Like my good friend Isaac Adams loves to say, Jesus don't do roommates. That's what's being communicated to Gideon right here. Gideon, there's only room for one altar, one throne in your life. That's what altars were. Altars were the footstools of a God's throne where his throne touched down. 
Gideon, there's, a, there's only room for one altar, one throne in your life. Shades, could it be? Could it be that sometimes it seems like the Lord isn't with us because we've invited so many other gods in and they crowd out our vision of him? Like I think that's what's happening for Gideon. So God cleans house. Showing Gideon and all the people of this town. Showing them there is no other God besides him. That's what the people learn the next morning when they find the altar of their false God destroyed. They're ticked off. They, want, they find out that it's Gideon. Somebody ratted him out. They want him to be put to death. But in a striking moment of strength, Joash, Gideon's dad, steps up. And he speaks with more wisdom than he himself knows. Look at verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against Gideon, will you contend for Baal? We fight his battle for him? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for Baal shall be put to death by morning. If Baal is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day, Gideon is called Jerubel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Joash says, if Baal is a god, let him contend for himself. But Baal is not a god. He cannot contend for himself, let alone for these people. That's the point. Yahweh is making. Yahweh alone is God. And he will contend not only for his own name, but for his people. He's going to contend for them. And before he delivers them from Midian, before he delivers them from the enemies that are around them, he's going to deliver them from the enemies that are among them. False gods. Surely now, surely now, Gideon can see the Lord is with us. It sure seems that way when you read the next couple of verses, verses 33 to 35, because what happens? The Midianites and the Amalekites assemble for their annual raid of all the produce of the land. But this time, this time we read in verse 34 that the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet. He sends out messengers, gathers an army, and it really looks like Gideon has realized we can do this, that the Lord is with us. And then we read verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said, like I know you've said this. I know you've promised this. I'm still not sure that you'll do it. I'm still not sure that you're with me. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone, and it's dry on the ground all around, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Gideon's still asking the same question we've seen throughout the chapter. Is the Lord really with us? Are you, are you really with Why? Why is he asking? Like, after all he's seen, after all he has experienced, why does it still seem to Gideon like the Lord is not 
with him. I actually think we are seeing the answer to Gideon's existential angst. We're seeing it through the very sign that Gideon is asking for. I think this sign, the sign of the fleece, I think what it shows us ultimately is that Gideon doesn't truly know the Lord. Like, sure, he'd heard about Yahweh his entire life. He said as much. But he doesn't really know who Yahweh is. He doesn't really know his character. He doesn't really know his heart. So how can he even trust that he will do what he has promised to do? I think that right here we are seeing the third reason, which is the biggest and the deepest reason. I think we're seeing the deepest reason why sometimes it can feel like the Lord isn't with us. We've seen sometimes it feels that way because we've left him. Sometimes it feels that way because we've invited others in. Number three, sometimes it feels that way because we've forgotten who he is again. Sometimes it can seem like the Lord isn't with us because we've forgotten who he is again. At the very beginning of this chapter, We saw that Gideon thought that Yahweh was the kind of God who would forsake his people. That's what he thought about the character of God. Probably because for Gideon, Yahweh was just one God amongst many. So Gideon must have figured he's just like all the other gods I've ever experienced. Every God that Gideon had ever known or served was a God that you had to bargain with. A God that you paid through your worship, in order to get the blessing that you wanted, like a vending machine in the sky. I'll put in the right coinage of sacrifice and prayer and going to temple, and I get to pick my blessing of crops or kids or whatever it is that I want. And so, because that's how all the other gods are that Gideon knows, that's the way he imagines Yahweh to be, because he's just one among many. Isn't that what we saw from the very beginning of this passage? Yahweh isn't giving Gideon the deliverance that he wants for his people. So clearly, Yahweh's just like all the other gods. He's forsaken his people. Gideon treated God just like another pagan deity in a pay-to-play relationship. Just as fickle as any other god I've ever seen, just as capricious, sometimes pouring out blessing, sometimes not. Yahweh wasn't different than any other god. And Shades, I've got to ask sometimes, are we any different than Gideon? How often, I'm speaking for me personally, okay? Like, like how often do I forget who God is and treat him like a pagan deity? Like a great vending machine in the sky who I pay through worship so he'll send me the blessings that I want. And when that doesn't happen, Seems like you're not with me. Seems like you've forsaken me, just like any other pagan deity. Shades, I I do this again and again and again, and it's because I have forgotten again and again and again who God is. But the beauty of the gospel is that God's grace is never ending, and in his great grace, he never stops reminding me of who he is. That's what he is graciously doing right here with Gideon in Judges chapter 6. Look at verse 38. Gideon sets out this fleece, asks for this sign. What happens? Verse 38, and it was so. And it was so. 
When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let, let not your anger burn against me. Let, let me speak just once more. All right? Please let me test just once more with the fleece. This time, let it be dry on the fleece only. Let's go the opposite of what would be natural. Maybe the fleece just kind of soaked up all the dew that was around it. So that's why the fleece was wet and the ground was dry. Natural process. Let's go in the other direction. Let's, let's let the fleece be completely bone dry. And on the ground all around, let there be dew. If I'm God, I'm slightly frustrated at this point. After everything I've done, everything I've shown you, and here we are still, still, you're still asking the question, am I really with you? That is not what God does. Look at verse 40. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground there was dew. Why does God do this? Like, why does he condescend to do what Gideon's asking him? I'll tell you why he doesn't do it. God doesn't do this to set Gideon up as a model for how we should communicate with him. That's how most people read this story. Aha! Here is how I determine the will of God. No, first of all, Gideon already knew what the will of God was. Okay? Here's how I confirm the will of God. No, second of all, Gideon knows he's doing something he shouldn't. Like, what? why does God do this? This passage isn't meant to teach us about how to communicate with God. It is meant to reveal what God is communicating about himself. God does this with the fleece to reveal his gracious power and presence. The same thing he's been aiming to reveal throughout the entire story graciously. See it with me. First, his power. Baal, the false god of Gideon's family, was, is the god over the weather. But this sign reveals that the power over the weather actually belongs to Yahweh all the way down to the dew. God, God can fill up a fleece even when the ground is bone dry. Or he can do the even more amazing thing of drying out the fleece while the ground is soaking wet. He is sovereign over all and his power extends all the way down to the dew. He has all power. Second, this sign shows that he is present. Gideon knows he's asking for something he shouldn't, but instead of rebuke, God shows love, grace. He kindly condescends. God fans the flame of Gideon's weak faith by confirming, I really am with you. I really have done what I said I've done. I really have clothed you with my spirit. I really am empowering you to be who I say you are, a mighty man of valor. You may not believe that about yourself, but that is who I have made you and will empower you to be. Shades. Shades, I don't care what the darkness around you seems like. I don't care what Midianites and Amalekites you've got assembling against you. I don't care if it's your past. I don't care if it's cancer. I don't care if it's turmoil. I don't care if it's sin. I don't care if it's suffering. The Lord really is with us. 
And he has given us, he has given you an even greater sign than a dew-soaked fleece. He became the fleece. A lamb, the angel of the Lord, came into the midst of your darkness. Just like he came into Gideon's and said, the Lord is with you. He came into the midst of our darkness, Emmanuel saying, God is with us. Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And no matter how many times we've abandoned him, he still comes for us. No matter how many other gods we've embraced along the way, he graciously comes to clear out our hearts of every false altar. You need a sign that that power and his presence is there with you in your life. He has given you one greater than any fleece. He has given you the sign of the cross. Where he became the fleece, the lamb of God that was soaked, not in dew, but in blood, wrung out for me and for you. And three days later, that lamb arose, that fleece was completely clean. Jesus Christ, in all of his power, came to be present in your life, not for your destruction, but for your ultimate deliverance. And it's coming, Shades. We may live through days that look like the days of the judges, but every day of deliverance that we are told about in Judges is there as an ultimate pointer to the ultimate day of deliverance that is coming. We may live in the midst of the darkness, but there is a light that the darkness, John 1 tells us, cannot overcome, and that is the light of Jesus Christ. He's with you. He is for you. He will never forsake you. He is unlike any God you have ever seen. He is the only true God present with you in all of his power. Shades. Let me say to you the truth from the lips of the angel of the Lord to Gideon, the truth from the lips of Jesus Christ to your heart. The Lord is with you. Even, especially when it doesn't seem.